be seated. And I would invite you this morning to uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 15, as we continue uh, through our series in 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> uh, our text this morning has been a real challenge for me this week, because it talks about how we carry the death of Jesus in our bodies so that the life of Jesus can show up in the lives of those around us. And uh, we'll talk about this more, but uh, the more I studied, the more I saw that uh, what Paul means by carrying around the death of Jesus is all the sacrifices that we make to show Jesus to each other. Uh, whether that's actually giving things up or enduring hurt or struggling to follow Jesus's ways of conflict resolution and love over our own. Uh, in all these things, we have to surrender ourselves to the will of Jesus, submit ourselves to him, and follow him, like we see Jesus do explicitly in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Uh, and I had to face the fact this week that uh, sometimes, especially in relationships that have long-term problems or that are particularly important to me, I am not always that great at surrendering my will to God's will and enduring hardship with the grace of his patience and showing mercy and kindness. And here's an example of what Jesus made me see. And I share it because I think it'll be helpful. Uh, I also shared this a little bit, uh, well, more actually, uh, in the men's group that met, in fathers and grandfathers group that met yesterday. Uh, in Romans 2, God says, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Which means my anger doesn't bring anyone to righteousness or life with Jesus, right? But I don't always live that out with my children the way that I should. Uh, not only because I reach my wit's end, but also because I love them. And I'm afraid that if they don't change and become 30-year-old mature Christians right now, it's never going to happen. Fear motivates me. Now, the kindness and mercy of the Lord usually changes things slowly over time. But God's timing and my fear don't always jive well when I want change right now, right? But what does jive well with that is anger. And I'm ashamed to say that while I believe what Paul says about God's kindness leading us to repentance, that what I have done all too often is rely on my anger because it seems to be a quicker way of getting change rather than Jesus's long-term kindness. And also, honestly, if I'm going to be totally honest, because why not? I'm gone this far. It requires less sacrifice for me. Less time, less talk, less work, less surrender of my will to God's will. I can move on with what I want to do. Now, for you, maybe this doesn't show up in your relationship with your kids. But maybe it shows up in your relationship with your parents, uh, or with your friends, or with your spouse, or your coworkers, or your neighbors. Maybe with people in the church, right? How many of us say to ourselves, well, since the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance, I'll sacrifice myself, I'll suffer to show the people sitting next to me in church kindness, because by expressing the death of Jesus to them, Jesus' life will come to them and they'll repent and we'll have this peaceful, joyful relationship. No, what do you say? That's not going to work. Have you seen them? 
They're so hard. They're so difficult. You see, in some area or another, we choose manipulation, anger, silent treatment, and other things that you will hear our text call disgraceful, underhanded, cunning ways of dealing with sin and its effects. But when we do that, we deny people, I deny people, even the people closest to me, the chance to experience the transforming power of Jesus' death and life. And that's what our text is about this morning. But our text doesn't aim at us feeling guilt over our failure, which, you know, though I felt guilt, is not the first thing God wanted me to feel. It's not the first thing he wants you to feel this morning. No, what God wants to give us this morning is confidence that when we follow his word by laying down our lives for one another in Jesus' name and by his grace, the whole of Jesus is with us and with those around us. Jesus is present in his death and in his resurrection life, and though the road may be long, the power he exercises is really at work in us and those around us. And so to gain that confidence, we're going to look at four things from our passage this morning. Uh, first, recognizing and rejecting the temptation to manipulate, downplay, and control. Second, proclaiming Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants. Third, Jesus sustains our frailty. I know half of you are like, can we start with that one? Uh, and then finally, a life that extends grace. So let's read 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 15. We'll pray. And then we'll start our reflection this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. Therefore, having this ministry by the grace of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus 
will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Thus far the reading of what I think can truly only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given to us to give us confidence that as we follow Jesus' uh, sacrificial example, we and those around us will experience the resurrection power of him as a gift given to us by your Holy Spirit. But Lord, we know that uh, this is impossible, that our faith will not exist in this word, that our life will not conform to this word, uh, that it will not become a part of who we are unless you act in our hearts first, unless you give us ears to hear, unless you help us understand it and believe it, unless you write it on our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you would do all of this now for the sake of Christ. Father, may the words of my mouth as the one called to proclaim your word, and may the meditation of our hearts this morning as those called to hear and receive your word, may it all be pleasing now in your sight, and may it all manifest Christ to us and in us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we need to hear God tell us in our passage is that in times of conflict, we need to consciously reject the temptation to manipulate others and change God's word. So in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, in our sermon last week, we saw that the ministry he's talking about is showing Jesus' glory, his face, his personality, his, his grace to each other. We saw how when we show each other the forgiveness and mercy and kindness and righteousness and holiness of Jesus, people actually, through the Holy Spirit, see Jesus through us. And if you missed that, you can... Uh, you want to hear it, you can listen to it through our website on, on YouTube or Apple Podcast. Uh, but anyway, the point is, uh, we have the privilege and honor of showing Jesus to each other by the mercy of God. Uh, God has saved us from our sins, and he's brought us into his work of redemption, of, of bringing the gospel and showing Jesus to the world outside the church, and as our text is talking about, also to the world inside the church. And Paul says that because we've been given this blessing, we don't lose heart. Meaning, we don't give up on the ministry of showing Jesus to each other. And I just want to be very clear here. Paul is not saying just, we don't give up on Jesus. He's saying, we don't give up on the ministry we've received from Jesus. We don't give up on the way Jesus calls us to show himself to each other in our lives. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. How many of us have thought, at least at some point in our lives, I love Jesus, I'm done with the church. Or I love Jesus, but I'm done with people. So the first one tends to be said by people in the church, and then you go into ministry and you're like, you know what, all people. <laughs> That laugh is said by people who have ministered in Jesus' name. See, they understand. Uh, the response, that response, though, is giving up the ministry. 
that Jesus has given to us that we've received from him by the Holy Spirit. Paul says they don't do that. And we should not do that because then we end up denying people the chance to see Jesus' face, to see his glory from us. Now, it will help us to connect this to our, our own lives if we ask why Paul feels the need to say this. Because remember, these, in these letters in the New Testament, Paul, Peter, they're not theologizing. They're not sitting at their desk writing out, you know, powerful thoughts that would be great to think about someday. They're addressing people as they live together with Jesus, with their problems and their struggles. This is a word from God addressed to us in real life. Life that is very much like us. So if you were here at the beginning of our series, <clears throat> you might remember that from the, <clears throat> excuse me, the time Paul planted this church until now, there have been problems. Paul and Timothy and Titus, who formed the church planting team from the start, were poorly treated by a number of the Christians in the congregation. And then after they left to go plant other churches, the church was almost immediately fractured by political rivalries within the church. And then those political rivalries made dealing with really public and destructive sins nearly impossible. And so Paul wrote a letter, 1 Corinthians, and then he made a visit, and then he wrote a letter, and then he made another visit, and then he wrote at least one more letter, maybe two. One of those is the letter we now call 2 Corinthians. And in all of those visits and in all of those letters over all of those years, Paul was consistently, constantly trying to bring sinners to repentance, trying to bring reconciliation and healing and unity to those in the body with each other and to those in the body with himself. He's been trying to grow them in Christ's likeness and in love, but it doesn't take much reading in these letters to see that all of that time, all of that effort, didn't bear the kind of fruit that it did in, say, Thessalonica, where Paul says, you don't need anyone to teach you how to love because God himself has taught you how to love. Or Philippi, where he rejoices always every time he makes his prayer for them in Christ. Or Colossae, where he celebrates the sacrifice that they made to contribute to his ministry and to Jesus' ministry of saving sinners. Those churches took off they sprouted in healthy ways. They continued on in very healthy ways pretty quickly. There was genuine love and affection. There's an easiness in those relationships. The Corinthian church, though, has taken years and years of Paul's prayers and his tears. He talks about weeping for them, and that's not rhetorical. It's taken all sorts of his time and his money and other churches' money and however long it took to wordsmith these letters for years in public and private paul has faithfully represented jesus to them endured sin from them and still the church is pretty broken uh, maybe this sounds a little bit familiar to you not necessarily in a congregational context but maybe you have relationships where you've invested Years and years of time, energy, prayer, tears, struggle, heartache. You've worked hard to faithfully show Jesus. And you aren't seeing any results, or at least not very major changes, certainly not very rapidly. 
when that happens, what are you tempted to do? Well, aren't you tempted to lose heart about Jesus' ministry and embrace what Paul explicitly rejects in verse 2, that we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways? This is verse 2. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. When Paul says he's renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, he means the same thing, basically, that we mean when we talk about manipulation, anger, and politicizing. And when Paul says we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, he's alluding to Satan in the Garden of Eden, who he's already alluded to earlier on, uh, just a couple paragraphs earlier. Satan who, through cunning challenged and then changed God's word so that what was in fact sinful appeared to be okay, even a way into blessing. Why does Paul explicitly reject manipulation, anger, at least the unrighteous kind, of course, politics and changing the word of God? Well, I think it's because he knows and has felt the temptation after years and years of struggle to finally, finally get some results. Uh, he's been battling against terrible, sinful behavior in the congregation for years. What if Paul could make some of those things stop by screaming at them loud enough and long enough that they're just too afraid to talk anymore? I'll make the problem go away by making you not talk. Or what if he could make it go away just by playing with the word of God a little bit. Did God really, I mean, God does care about sexual probity, but does it really cover this particular area? What if it doesn't? God, does God really want us to give our money to the ministry of Jesus? Does God really want us to welcome that person in the church, not just with an intellectual Oh, I'm glad they're here, but by sitting down next to them and inviting them over to your house and showing them love. I mean, don't we feel the temptation in our own life when we're faced with relationships that seem to be stuck in sin to manipulate, to change God's word, to adjust expectations so that we don't have to deal with it anymore or so that we can just sort of force a response that is easier for us in the moment? See, the temptation to manipulate, downplay God's word and try to take control from Jesus rather than submit to Jesus is a real thing. And my friends, Paul saw these options. I'm sure he felt the temptation of these options. He's speaking to people in the congregation who themselves feel their temptation. So was Timothy, his co-author. They reject them. We should reject them. Why should we reject them? It's because, as Paul says, those things don't show people Jesus. They don't give them the gospel. And they don't produce the righteousness of Christ. And since Jesus is the only one who can bring real repentance, real change, and real peace that isn't just a cold shoulder ceasefire, but the peace of open embrace and welcome and love. We are called, and Paul accepts Jesus' calling, 
to press on in giving Jesus to each other, even though it's hard. Which leads me to my second and brief point, which is we proclaim Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants. So after talking about how their goal is to speak openly, honestly about Jesus, and after acknowledging that if there's been a problem receiving Jesus, that in this case, it hasn't originated with Paul and Timothy, but with Satan and his lies, Paul says in verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And there were seven things I wanted to say here this morning. I'm limiting myself to two, and you can thank Jesus for that. Um, the two things I want to talk about, the first thing is, and I'm going to talk about them together. The first thing is, in our relationships, we need to make it a goal, a conscious aim to proclaim Jesus and not ourselves. And the second thing related to it is part of proclaiming Jesus and not ourselves is, as Paul says, proclaiming that we are the servants of the people we're talking to for Jesus' sake. Did you hear Paul say that? What we proclaim as Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Okay, so what does that mean specifically? What does it look like in practice? How do we know we're doing it? How, does, how did Paul know he was doing it? How do we know we're doing it? How can we know that we are fulfilling this ministry of proclaiming Jesus as Lord and ourselves as their servants for Jesus' sake? Well, first, Paul, we know we can know we're proclaiming Jesus as Lord because Paul consistently, faithfully spoke Jesus' words. He told the Corinthians when they liked to hear it and when they didn't, that Jesus wants you to repent and believe in him for salvation. He told them Jesus' word that he wants them to give up church politics and stop fighting to be the biggest name in reformed blogdom. Paul called them to take up Jesus' invitation to partner with him in the gospel by helping to send and receive missionaries and church planters and by providing for local congregations. He told them Jesus wants you to pray. He wants you to pray for your enemies. He wants you to pray with each other. Uh, he wants you to pray and to actually love the Roman soldier and the poor Jewish widow who he just brought into the church. And he wants them to learn to sit together and be respectful and loving and welcoming to one another. He wants you in that light to worship together in Jesus' name, to listen to his word together, to sing songs to him together, to eat the Lord's Supper together as one body, and to be thankful together. Paul called them to submit themselves to God's word as it's revealed in the Bible. That's proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Here is the crucified and resurrected Savior and King. Follow him. Not necessarily what I want or what you want, but what Jesus wants. And here is explicitly from Scripture what Jesus wants. Here's what it means to proclaim yourself as their servant for Jesus' sake. I'm going to help you do all of this. That's what a servant is, right? Someone who serves, who helps. So you say, I'm going to sacrifice with you. I'm going to walk with you, pray with you, pray 
for you. I'm going to call you to repent. I'm going to be around to help you repent. I'm going to welcome you with deeds of love when you do repent. Uh, a servant is not greater than his master, Jesus says. My master, Jesus, doesn't give up on his people. I will not give up on you either. My Lord Jesus died on the cross for you. I will take up the cross he's given me. And in his name, I will bear the burdens of the Christian life with you. And as Paul says in Galatians, so fulfill the law of Christ. As a servant of Jesus, I will show you Jesus. I will work hard to give you Jesus in my life so that following him will be easier for you, even if it's harder for me. That's why Paul says in verse 6, this beautifully poetic phrase, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where is the light shining from in this analogy? Us. As we sacrifice as servants of one another to show Jesus in the darkness of other people's lives. And it's why Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. That's how you know if you're proclaiming Jesus as Lord and yourself as their servants in Jesus' name and fulfilling the ministry that Jesus has given to us. If you're bearing the cost of helping people follow Jesus' word and you're speaking Jesus' word, then you and I can say with Paul, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. But that is so hard and so scary. Amen. Yes, it is. Which is why we need our third point quickly. That's why I saved it till now. Uh, Jesus sustains us in our frailty. Uh, this is verses 7 through 12. I'm going to read those again and then just make a couple of quick comments on them. Verse 7, uh, but we have this treasure, notice the but there, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not given to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Uh, first, I just want you to notice uh, where God has put this treasure of Jesus and his ministry. Uh, he's put the beauty of Jesus' holiness in these jars of clay. Right? He's put the glory of heaven in these common, ordinary, fragile things. He's put it in us. Now, given everything I said just before this about following Jesus, you might think that this proclaiming yourself as a servant of Christ and being a servant of Christ requires sort of daily heroic acts of sacrifice. No. What I mean and what Jesus means are the ordinary acts of love and kindness 
of talking about Jesus, of forgiving and sacrificing for one another that we do in his name every day. And you can see that in this beautiful metaphor of these clay pots. And I think one reason God chose this metaphor of a clay pot, of a common life thing, of something you'd find in everyone's house back in the day, everyone's kitchen, just an object that just faithfully does its jobs of holding its contents until it's needed. I think he chose this metaphor because the Father wants us to understand that he's put the treasure of Jesus in us common, ordinary people who get to walk around with the honor of holding Jesus' glory in us. So that in God's providence, when we find ourselves in a situation, big or small, where someone needs Jesus, we're prepared to open ourselves and show them Jesus through his word and through our acts of love. That's one part of the metaphor. The other part of the metaphor is also clearly frailty, vulnerability, being easily broken. Clay pots are easily broken. And honestly, so are we. And just real quick, I think in the context of showing Jesus over and over and over again to a people who didn't seem to be changing and growing, uh, where people we love aren't responding in loving ways, but instead in ways that hurt us, God is telling us that he understands that these things can shatter us like clay pots. And in calling people to follow Jesus and in helping them follow Jesus and in forgiving them and welcoming them, we experience, as God tells us, affliction because we can meet resistance from those who are involved. And in that context, we totally experience being perplexed, which is the perfect word. Perplexed means I don't have any idea what to do. Have you ever been in a relationship where you've done everything you can to make it healthy and nothing's worked? And you go, I don't even know what to do. I've done everything I can do. I've said everything I know how to say. That's what being perplexed is. That's why Paul brings that up here. I'm confused. I don't know the way forward. We experience frailty in our lives. And we also experience persecution, don't we? Not in this case from those outside the church, but from those inside the church. The context he's talking about, remember, is bringing the gospel of reconciliation to Christians. Sometimes Christians respond to Jesus' call to take up their cross and follow him by taking their fear of that loss out on the messenger. All of this hurts. It's frightening. It's exhausting. It's angering. But though all of these things are real, Jesus says, we are not crushed. We are not left helpless, right? We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're not helpless. We're not without a family, which is to say we're not without Jesus and his people. Why? Because Jesus is here now. 
the reason we are not overwhelmed and destroyed and broken is not because of some like theological truth that we've embraced with our minds. It's because Jesus is here. It's because the person we think about is here in his person. Jesus is here now. He's here with me. He's here with you. And he's here with us. Isn't that what Paul means in verses 10 through 11 when he talks about the death of Jesus being present in us so that his life can be present in other people? To say that Jesus' death and his life are with us is to say that the whole Christ is with us. Not in bits and pieces and parts, but in his entire person. And I know that the death of Jesus being with us is scary because it implies suffering. We've talked about that. I spent a lot of time thinking about that this week. But as I thought about that and what it means, I learned something that was very profound to me, something I'd never thought of before, uh, something I hope can help you. So what did Jesus' death do? Well, one of the things it does, and this is not something that I learned this week. The other is coming in a second. You should all know this. The thing that we know it, his death does is it forgave our sins, right? To carry around Jesus' death with us is to carry around his capacity to forgive sins with us. That's part of what it means to carry around the death of Jesus. It's to carry Jesus' own power to forgive people when they sin against us. The power that nailed his hands open on a cross. But what else did Jesus' death do? This is something that has just sort of transformed the way that I think about why we should sacrifice and bear Jesus' death for each other. Jesus' death brought sinners to repentance and life. The thief on the cross, while Jesus is dying, asked Jesus to remember him. And Jesus says, yes. The Roman soldier at Jesus' death looks up to heaven and says, truly, this is the Son of God. Jesus' death brought salvation and life. What else did his death do? It created the public discipleship of two people who were afraid to follow Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who no longer followed Jesus in the darkness and secretly at night, but who followed Jesus in the day by saying, we want to bury his body in our tomb. Isn't that powerful? When Jesus is showing his death on us, he's bringing about what only he can do in his time and in his ways, which is forgive sinners, save sinners, and grow sinners into faithful disciples of himself. And that's why we aren't destroyed. You see, Jesus in giving us his death to carry around in our bodies isn't killing us. He's interested in giving his life to others through us. And our frail daily life is the vessel he's chosen to place the power of the resurrection in. 
in our weakness is the thing that Jesus has decided to show the strength of his salvation through. We are at time. So I'm going to make my last point a paragraph. Verses 13 through 14, our reflection on Psalm 116, which is a super powerful prayer from a saint who learned the faithfulness of God in his suffering, who learned that when he was scared, even when he struggled with belief, he could still pray to Jesus and trust him to take care of him. Go home and read it, Psalm 116. Read it with your kids. Read it privately. It's not long. It's beautiful. It's the psalm where God says that in the that the death of his saints is precious in the eyes of Jesus. But after talking about that and referencing that, which I think sort of fits the context really well, he ends with this thought in verse 15. He says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul understands that the kingdom of Jesus grows in the world and in the life of God's people only through the means Jesus himself has appointed. That is, only through the tools Jesus has decided to use to grow his kingdom. And because Paul has seen Jesus' kingdom grow through the cross and through all the things that Jesus' death represents and accomplishes, he's learned just how powerful Jesus' means truly are. And how transforming the life of God in the gospel is for us and for our neighbors. And he wants us to get that. Because as we do and as we practice it, Jesus will appear more and more clearly in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And more will be saved. And all of us will grow as disciples of Jesus. And all of us will come to see God in Christ more clearly. So my friends, let's renounce anger, manipulation, and the desire to change God's word. And let's proclaim Jesus as Lord with ourselves as their servants and each other's servants for Jesus' sake. And let's trust that Jesus is with us and that as his death is expressed in our lives, the life of Jesus will be at work in those around us and in us to the glory of God, and to our, the perfection of our life with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have put the treasure of Jesus into us and uh, have blessed us with the ministry of showing him to one another and to the world. Uh, please help us not to lose heart, but to uh, fulfill this ministry by proclaiming Jesus as Lord with ourselves as their servants for the sake of Christ. Please help us to show Jesus and talk about Jesus uh, to each other, even when it's difficult, and help us to know and see both the power of Christ's death in us and the power of Christ's resurrection in the people we serve and in us, uh, so that we can be confident that you are with us and are blessing us with the gift of participating with you as you build up your church through Christ in his gospel by your spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.